Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our March UX event, where you'll hear from Nir Eyal. Nir literally wrote the book on building habit-forming products with his bestseller, Hooked. This talk expounds upon his book and gives product managers, designers, and marketers a new way for thinking of the necessary components of changing user behavior by studying how the world's most engaging products keep users coming back again and again. A big thanks to Bluehost for hosting this meetup. And finally, be sure to join our community on Slack, where there's always a lot of great conversation happening about UX, product management, and more. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now, let's hear Nir Ayal's talk, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Hey, everybody. So good to be back in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's a great town. So glad to be here. And thank you, Brendan, for the invitation and, and for um, getting all this together in such uh, short notice. Uh, I happen to be in town, so I'm so happy that many of you came out. Let me just take a quick show of hands. How many of you have had a chance maybe to read my book or see one of my talks online? Okay. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's a lot of you. I really appreciate that. Um, but what, what I think I want to do then in that case, since there's a lot of folks who already have seen some of this material, and so since, uh, since maybe you've, you've already uh, seen a little bit of my work before, I think what I want to do is to kind of fly through a very quick overview of, of Hooked about how to build habit-forming products. And then I want to leave lots and lots of time for your questions and answers, because that's the kind of stuff you can't get in the book, uh, you can't see on YouTube. And I really want to individualize to your questions, your concerns, uh, your, your comments. There's a lot of stuff that's been happening in the news recently about tech ethics that we can talk about. We can talk about this next book that I'm working on, on distraction, if that's interesting for you all. So does that sound good uh, for that? All right, terrific. So around this question of designing for habits, designing for engagement, if we want to do something really well, if we want to be world class at something, we want to talk to who does that thing better than anyone else. right? So if you want to be a world class swimmer, maybe you talk to Michael Phelps. If you want to be a world class investor, maybe you call Warren Buffett. If you want to be an amazing actor, maybe you call, I don't know, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> All right, you get my jokes. That's good. If you don't laugh at my jokes, it's going to be a very long talk. Okay, good. I'm glad you're with it. But seriously, we've all seen how these products and services that we're carrying around with us in our pockets every day, how these devices have profoundly changed our day-to-day -day lives. And if we want to become world-class at changing customers' behavior for the better, at creating customer habits, we have to look at the best in the business, not Keanu Reeves. We need to look at the best in the business in our business, in our industries, these companies that were able to start out as toys, everybody dismissed at first, and yet within the span of maybe five to ten years, these companies have changed the behaviors of hundreds of millions, if not billions of users, and they're making hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars. Who am I talking about? Who are these usual suspects of companies? Give me some names. Amazon. Amazon, sure. Who else? Apple, Google, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, Snapchat, all of these companies, they started out as toys. YouTube, I didn't mention. All of these companies, they started out as toys, as these nice-to-haves. 
and in the, span, in the span of a very short period of time, changed the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions, of users. And I would argue they did that in large part because they are masters of changing consumer habits. And so what we want to do today is to understand the patterns behind how these companies design their user experience so we can learn from these products and services to incorporate these lessons in our own products and services. Does that sound good? Are we in the right place? Yeah. All right, terrific. So I wrote this book called Hooked a few years ago, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. It came out of a class that I taught at Stanford. You know what's a good idea, actually? Does everybody mind kind of moving to the left? Because I think we're going to keep getting some more folks. It'll make it easier for them when they enter. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Um, so we're not going to have time to go through everything in the book. Uh, if you haven't read the book, uh, it's available on Amazon. If you don't have the, whatever the 14 bucks, go pirate it somewhere. I don't really care. This is a very smart crowd. You can figure out how to go get it for free. I already got my advance. I don't care. <laughs> so just you know, there's a lot of examples and case studies. I wrote this book to be very user friendly, very reader friendly. It's something that you can go through very quickly and do exercises to, to diagnose your product in more depth. But today I want to give you a very brief overview of how to build habit-forming products, starting with what is this word? What do we mean when we use this word habit? What does that actually uh, signify? Habit, the definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. It's about half of what you do every single day is done purely out of habit. These behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. And I believe that we are on the precipice of an age where we can use these habits for good. Because there is an explosion of companies out there who are using the psychology of building for, for habits to help people live better, happier, healthier lives. I am not here to teach Facebook and Google and, and Snapchat how to do this stuff. They already know. Those are the case studies that I use to teach the rest of us how to use the same exact deeper psychology for good to help people form healthy habits in their lives, to help them save money, exercise more, be more productive at work, whatever the case may be, we can use the same psychology to help people live better lives. That's why I'm here today. So to do that, the secret is that we have to build inside our product and service something that exists in every single one of those companies I just mentioned. We have to build a hook. A hook is an experience designed to connect your user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit. Let me say that again. A hook is an experience designed to connect the user's problem to your product with enough frequency to form a habit. And through successive cycles through these hooks, this is how customer preferences are shaped, how tastes are formed, and how these habits take hold. Okay? So let's walk through these four basic steps that are required to build a habit-forming product. Now, a lot of the examples I'm going to show you are from consumer web products. These are the kind of products that we all know and use. It's easier to talk about these than some more uh, eccentric kind of you know, enterprise type products. But I want you to know that as long as your customer uses your product with sufficient frequency, whether it's consumer web or enterprise, doesn't matter. The same exact rules apply to enterprise just as much as consumer web. Okay? So, First step of the hook is the trigger phase. A trigger is something that prompts us to action, and we have two types of triggers. The first type is called an external trigger. An external trigger is something in our environment that tells us what to do next. It's a call to action. It's a, a button that says push here, or, or uh, play, play this, or a word of mouth through uh, a, a friend telling you about this great new app you should try out. 
all examples of external triggers. Now, we know all about these external triggers. I don't need to teach you about external triggers. You, you, do the, you use external triggers every day as consumers. You design them in your profession. But what product designers don't think about enough, and what actually turns out to be more important than these external triggers, are the internal triggers. Internal triggers are things that prompt us to action, that tell the user what to do next, but where the information for what to do is not stored outside the user, but rather is stored as a memory or an association inside the user's head. So what we do when we're in a particular place, in a certain situation, around certain people, partaking in certain routines, and most frequently when we experience certain emotions, prompts us to action, tells us what to do next with little or no conscious thought. Now the most frequently occurring internal triggers are these emotions, but not just any emotion, they are specifically negative emotions. Negative emotions. So what we do when we're feeling lonely or lost or indecisive or bored or fatigued, what we do when we experience these negative emotions prompts us to actions, prompts us to look for relief from our discomfort. In fact, psychologists know that people who suffer from depression check email more. I just saw three people put away their phones. <laughs> Why is that? Why do people suffering from clinical depression check their email more often? Well, it turns out that people suffering from clinical depression experience what's called a negative valence state. They feel down more often than the rest of the population. And what are they doing to boost their mood to be taken out of that negative valence state? They're going online, they're turning to their devices, they're checking email more often than the rest of the population. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all do this. We all do this. Let me ask you, what website or app do people check when they're feeling lonely? Where do they go? Facebook. Facebook, right? Somebody said Tinder? <laughs> Also, also loneliness, different kind of loneliness, but also loneliness. <laughs> what about when we're feeling unsure about something? Before we scan our brains to see if we know the answer to something, where do we go? Google. We Google it, of course. And what about when we're feeling bored, you know, between 2 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you have that big project you don't want to work on right now, where do you go? You go to YouTube, you go to Reddit, you check stock prices, sports scores, the news, all of these things cater to this uncomfortable internal trigger of boredom. We don't like that sensation of boredom, and the cure for that discomfort is found with a solution in our pockets. Now let me leave you with a very important insight. Every behavior that you do, your customer does, your user does, every human behavior is prompted by one thing. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. In the psychology community, we used to believe that, that uh, human behavior was prompted by the desire for seeking pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's not exactly true. It turns out all human motivation is actually inspired by the pursuit of alleviating this discomfort. Everything we do, every product we use, is used for one reason and one reason only, and that is to modulate our mood to modulate our mood, to make us feel something different. Which means that if you want to build a habit-forming product, if you want to build something that can improve people's lives by changing their behavior, you have got to understand what is that customer's internal trigger. If you can't articulate for me what is that user's itch that you are going to attach your product's use to, 
you're just getting lucky. And I see this all the time, especially in the engineer community. You know, they'll tell me, oh my God, our product can do all these whiz-bang amazing things. But when I say to them, okay, but what's the internal trigger? What's the product itch that your user will respond to to get them to use your product with little or no conscious thought? They have no idea. You have got to be able to tell me what that internal trigger is or there's no hope of building a habit around your product or service. So lots of examples in the book, but again, for the sake of time, I want to move on to the other steps of the hook. The next step of the hook is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing the user can do to get relief from that psychological discomfort we just discussed. Now, I want to show you some examples of some habit-forming products, and I want you to see just how simple the key action is. Something as simple as a scroll on Pinterest, or searching on Google, or what could be simpler than just pushing the play button on YouTube. These incredibly simple, discrete behaviors done in anticipation of an immediate reward. Okay? Turns out there's actually a formula to help us predict the likelihood of these singular behaviors. It comes to us from a researcher at Stanford by the name of B.J. Fogg. And Fogg tells us that for any human behavior B, we need three things at the same time. We need sufficient motivation, that's the M. We need sufficient ability. Ability is how easy or difficult something is to do. And the T stands for triggers. We just talked all about triggers, internal triggers, external triggers. Let's talk for just a quick minute about motivation and ability. Motivation is the energy for action, how much we want to do a particular behavior. Uh, and, and according to Fogg, we have these six levers that we can pull on to increase a user's motivation. Because all of us as human beings, we seek pleasure, we avoid pain, we seek hope, we avoid fear, we seek social acceptance, we avoid social rejection. Okay? A lot more to be said about motivation, but for the sake of time, I want to move on to the A in B equals M-A-T, because I think it's actually more important than motivation. The A stands for ability, the capacity to do a particular behavior. Psychology has known for decades and common sense will tell you that the easier something is to do, the more likely people are to do it. So here again, we have these six levers that we can pull on to make a behavior more likely to occur based on how much time a behavior takes how much money something costs, how much physical effort is required to do a behavior. Brain cycles, this is a big one when it comes to the technology industry because the harder something is to understand, the less likely that behavior is to occur. Social deviance tells us that we become more likely to do something because we see other people like us doing it. And then finally, non-routine says that we become more likely to do something simply for the fact that we have done it before in the past. And this is why habits are so powerful. Because the more we do a particular behavior, the easier it becomes and the more likely we are to do it in the future. What's that called? It's called practice, right? The more we do it, the easier it gets, the more likely we are to do it in the future. And this is why habits have this repeater effect. Now we can conceptualize these three elements of B equals MAT on this graph and we can ask ourselves if you've designed a beautiful new website, an amazing new app, whatever it might be, but darn it people aren't doing the behavior you've designed for them to do. They're not checking out, they're not clicking, whatever it is that you designed for them to do, if they're not doing it, it's only because of one of these three reasons. Either the user lacks motivation on the y-axis, right, high motivation up here, low motivation down here, or 
They lack ability, meaning if something's very easy, it's over here. If something is hard, low ability, it's over here. And when the user has sufficient ability, I'm sorry, sufficient motivation and sufficient ability, they cross that red threshold. And in that zone, if the trigger is present, the behavior will occur. Every time, online, offline, doesn't matter. Let's make this clear. I want to use a quick example here. Think of the last time that a phone rang in your life, a phone rang, and you did not pick up the phone. What's a reason why you didn't pick up the phone? Give me a real reason. You didn't want to talk to You didn't want to talk to the person. Maybe it's a telemarketer. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. Who knows? Right? Maybe you didn't want to talk to that person. So even though you heard the phone ring, the trigger was present, high ability, the phone is right there in your hand, you lacked motivation so low that it didn't cross that threshold and the behavior didn't occur. What's another reason that has to do with ability or trigger? What's, you're in the shower, perfect. Okay, so you're in the shower, you hear the phone ring, the trigger is present, right? You heard the phone ring, you say to yourself, oh, I really wanna pick up that call, but you lack the ability. It's too difficult to get out of the shower, rinse yourself off, run across the house, and I say, why bother? Too hard, right? By the way, what do we call this zone, this gap right here, when a user has high motivation and low ability, what's this called? This is called frustration. And we see it all the time with the products that we build. That users sit in the zone, they don't do the behavior because they can't figure out what to do. Right? They lack the ability, cognitive load, time, money, whatever it is, they are lacking some form of ability to get them to do the behavior. What's one more reason that has to do with a trigger why you may not pick up a call? Don't hear a ring, exactly. Maybe the phone is on silent. This happens to me all the time. I hope I'm not the only one, right? That you have high motivation, you're expecting that call, right? You're waiting for it. The phone is right there next to you, high ability, but no trigger was present because the phone was on silent. So for every human behavior, every click, every transaction, your behavior, your significant other's behavior, your kid's behavior, your customer's behavior, every behavior always requires sufficient motivation, ability and a trigger every single time. If the behavior isn't occurring, it's only because one of these three reasons, okay? The next step of the hook is the reward phase. The reward phase is where things start getting really interesting. When we talk about rewards, we have to talk about the brain. Specifically, an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which was first studied by two Canadian researchers by the name Olds and Milner. And Olds and Milner did these fascinating experiments where they connected the brains of lab animals with a tiny electrode, and they let these lab animals push a little button to send an electrical jolt to this part of the brain. And what they found was that these lab animals wanted to do nothing but incessantly activate this part of the brain again and again and again. They would forgo food and water, they would run across painful electrified grids just to activate this part of the brain. In later experiments done on people, when people were given a little button to press on that sent an electrical jolt to their nucleus accumbens, they did so hundreds of times. Some people in the studies had to have the machines forcibly removed from them to get them to stop pushing on these buttons. Turns out we don't need electrodes in people's heads to, sp to, to spark the nucleus accumbens. In fact, your nucleus accumbens is activated every single day with things like luxury goods, certain chemicals, sex, uh, junk food, and of course, right there in the center, our technology. All of these things activate the very same part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. Now for decades, Olds and Milner thought that the purpose of the nucleus accumbens was to stimulate pleasure, right? Why else would lab animals 
And later people incessantly activate this part of the brain if it wasn't because it felt good, right? Not exactly. It turns out what we now know that Olds and Milner never did is that the nucleus accumbens does not activate pleasure per se, but rather it activates what we call the stress of desire. This wanting, this craving reflex, because it turns out the nucleus accumbens becomes most active in anticipation of a reward. But as these fMRI studies have shown, when we actually get the thing we want, the thing that's finally going to make us happy, that we think is going to make us feel good, that's when the nucleus accumbens becomes less active. So the way the brain gets us to act is by creating this itch that we seek to scratch. It turns out that there is a way to supercharge this desirous response, this craving reflex. Did you know that there is a way to manufacture desire? Those who know what it is and read the book don't say. But who here wants to know how to manufacture desires? Anybody curious? Yes. Sure. Yes. 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 I'm doing it to you right now. Right? So that nervous laughter that kind of erupted and you guys said, yes, tell me. What? Okay, what's the answer? I'm ready. Okay, just tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Why? Where does that come from? Because when I took that long pause and I stopped talking for a second, and I asked you a question, some of you perked up. Why did he stop talking? What's he going to say next? What's the answer already? And it turns out that a bit of mystery, a bit of uncertainty, causes us to engage, it causes us to focus, and it is highly habit-forming. It's called a variable reward. It comes out of the work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. Skinner did these famous experiments where he took a pigeon, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a little disc to peck at. And every time this pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. Okay? Very quickly, Skinner learned that he could train the pigeon to peck at the disc whenever the pigeon was hungry. By the way, if there was no internal trigger of hunger, Skinner couldn't make the pigeon do something that the pigeon didn't want to do. The pigeon had to be hungry. But as long as the pigeon was hungry, very quickly they learned, peck at the disc, get a reward. But then Skinner had a little problem. You see, he literally didn't have enough of these little food pellets. He started to run out one day. And so instead of giving the food pellet to the pigeon every time they pecked at the disc, which he couldn't afford to do, he started giving the food pellet every once in a while. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc, no food would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times that these pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Why does this happen? Because variability spikes activity in the nucleus accumbens, creating this desirous response, this craving reflex. And so in all sorts of products that you find most engaging, most habit-forming, you will always find one or more of these three types of variable rewards. What I call rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Let me introduce these to you briefly. Rewards of the tribe are all about social rewards. These, these, these are things that feel good, that have this element of variability, and come from other people. So when we think about empathetic joy, feeling good because someone else feels good, partnership, cooperation, competition, all examples of things that have a bit of uncertainty, 
come from other people, and fundamentally feel good. Best example online is, of course, social media. Right? When you check Facebook, you're never quite sure what you're going to see in your feed. What photos do people post? What are the comments going to say? How many likes does something get? High degree of social variability involved with a product like social media. Next comes rewards of the hunt. Rewards of the hunt are all about the search for material possessions. In modern society, we buy these things with money. So when people think of variable rewards, many times people will think about slot machines. Right? They'll think about gambling. They'll think about the uncertainty that's part of experiencing one of these games of chance. You're not sure if you're going to win anything. That's what makes that spinning wheel so interesting, to see what's going to happen next. Turns out we see the exact same psychology at work online. Consider the feed. Have you noticed how the feed has become so ubiquitous in nearly every tech product these days, especially on mobile? Why, what is it about the feed? Why is the feed so widely used as a, as a design mechanic? Well, let's take a look at LinkedIn's feed, for example. So LinkedIn, you log in, and you see here maybe the first article is not that interesting, and the second article is not that interesting, but maybe the third or fourth is interesting. And what do you have to do to see more interesting content? What do you have to do? Scroll. And that scrolling and scrolling uses the exact same psychology as pulling on a slot machine. Both variable rewards of the hunt. Finally, we have what's called the rewards of the self. Rewards of the self are things that feel good, that have this element of variability, this element of mystery, but don't come from other people and aren't about the search for material or information rewards. These are things that feel good in and of themselves. They're intrinsically pleasurable. So the search for mastery, consistency, competency, and control that you might find playing an online game is a great example. Right? Needing to get, get to the next level, the next accomplishment on Candy Crush. You're not playing with other people. Right? There's no material rewards, but there's something fun about getting to the next level, the next accomplishment. I know everybody here, we're all very serious business people. None of us play these games, right? <laughs> but I bet you you play this game every day. Does this look familiar? Your email inbox, probably the mother of habit-forming technology. Right? Your email inbox is full of variable rewards. What's in that message? What, what do they need? Is it good news? Is it bad news? Who's it from? All this variability comes from these, these variable rewards, these rewards of the hunt. If you're the kind of person on your to-do list, if you check your to-do list to finish those to-dos, or the thing that always gets me is that one app notification I have to open to clear it away, these are all rewards of the self. The search for mastery, consistency, competency, and control. The point of the variable reward phase is to give the user what they came for, to scratch their itch, and yet leave a bit of mystery around what they might find the next time they engage with the product. Now remember that there are no free passes here. This isn't about some stupid gamification hack where we're putting points and badges and leaderboard. That stuff almost never works. It doesn't work, typically, because it doesn't connect the variable reward with the internal trigger. So if the internal trigger is boredom, well then gamification is great because gamification makes that, it alleviates boredom. It can make experiences more fun. But if the internal trigger is something completely different, let's say the internal trigger is workplace anxiety, then some stupid gamification hack isn't going to cut it. You've got to relieve my stress. You have to give me certainty is the solution to my workplace uncertainty. Right? If the internal trigger is loneliness, well then we've got to connect people together. That's why it's so critical to understand that internal trigger because you have no hope of designing a reward that meets users' needs unless you understand their psychological state. Okay? And finally, 
the investment phase. The investment phase is probably the most overlooked of the four steps of the hook. This is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of some kind of future benefit, some kind of future reward. And the point of the investment phase is to increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook in two ways. The first way is by loading the next trigger. So something that the user does to bring themselves back. Not some piece of spammy advertising or messaging that you send me, but something that I did to bring myself back. Let me give you an example. When someone says a message on WhatsApp, when you send that message, there's no immediate gratification, right? There's no points, there's no badges, there's no leaderboard. Nothing happens when I send someone that message. What I'm doing when I send that message by investing in the platform, what I'm doing is I'm loading the next trigger because I'm likely to get a reply. And that reply comes coupled with, what's that meatball an example of? An external trigger that prompts me through the hook once again. This is where we started with those external triggers. Okay? So the first way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass is by loading the next trigger. The next way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass is even more important. This concept is called storing value. Storing value is when the product gets better and better with use. And this is an amazing phenomenon if you think about it. For the vast majority of human history, all manufactured goods, everything in the physical world, these uh, chairs, your clothing, everything in the physical world loses value with wear and tear, right? It depreciates. But habit-forming products, think about this, habit-forming products have the, uh, have the power to appreciate with use. They should get better and better and more valuable the more we use them because of this concept of stored value. For example, the more content a user uploads to a service like Google Drive or Dropbox, the more valuable that service becomes. The more data that a customer shares with a platform like Mint.com, the more data you give this financial services app, the more powerful it becomes, the better the recommendations, the more it can do for you, the more valuable it becomes. The more followers someone accrues, the more valuable the product becomes to them. If Twitter tomorrow were to send out a message and say, hey everybody, um, Twitter's no longer free, okay? You're gonna have to start paying for Twitter now. Who's more likely to keep paying for Twitter? Would it, will it be someone with 10 followers or 10,000 followers? Of course, it's gonna be the person with 10,000 followers because they've stored all that value in their form of their follower count. It became a better way to reach their audience. Right? And finally, reputation. Reputation is a form of stored value that users can literally take to the bank. Because my reputation on Upwork or eBay or Airbnb determines what I can charge for my goods and services. And how likely am I to leave one of these platforms after I've acquired this positive reputation? How likely am I to leave? Kind of unlikely, right? It's pretty sticky now. Even if a better product or service comes along. Think about that, right? You've been told a myth when it comes to product design. You've been told a lie that all it takes to win a market is just to make the best product, right? Haven't we all been told the best product wins? And I'm here to tell you that's not true. It's not the best product that wins. It's the product that can capture the monopoly of the mind, the one that can run users through these four steps of a trigger, action, reward, investment. This is how consumer preferences are shaped, how our tastes are formed, and how these habits take hold. So in conclusion, if you're building the kind of product that needs a customer habit, 
If you need customers to use your product without spammy advertising and marketing messages that annoy them, if you want them to come back to your product on their own, out of habit, you've got to be able to answer these five fundamental questions of number one, what's the internal trigger? What's the itch that prompts the user to action? What's the external trigger that provides them some kind of information? What's the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward? Is the reward fulfilling and it leaves the user wanting more? And then finally, what's the bit of work done to increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook? Now, before we take some questions, there's one more thing I want to talk about, which is the morality of manipulation. And I know many of you, as I was doing my presentation, you were thinking to yourselves, you know, is this kosher? Is this ethical? Is this all right to do to people, to use their hidden psychology to get them to do stuff that we want them to do? And if you had that reaction, I say bravo. I think that's fantastic. Because let's face it, anytime we are changing consumer behavior, for any reason, design is the profession of changing people's behavior. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a form of manipulation. And we need to be very cautious about how we apply these techniques. Because these are the devices that people take to bed with them every night. It's the first thing we reach for in the morning before we even say hello to our loved ones. And so we have to ask ourselves what our responsibility is as product designers, as developers, as engineers, as investors. What is our responsibility to use these tactics for good? And I encourage you to use these tactics to help people live better lives, to help them find something meaningful and important for them to become habituated to. And to show you that I put my money where my mouth is, I want to show you, tell you about one company that I invested in a few years ago. This is a company called Seven Cups. Uh, every week on Thursdays, I do office hours. Anybody can call me, uh, and we do 15 minutes at a time. And people say, hey, I've read your book, and here's how I'm applying your, your, your work uh, to my business. Anybody's welcome. You can sign up on my website. A few years ago, a, a psychotherapist in Virginia Beach by the name of Glenn Moriarty called me. And Glenn told me that he knew that many people in his area were not getting the kind of therapy that they needed. Veterans suffering from PTSD, parents who have a child with a disability, or just any one of us who's struggling with loneliness and needs someone to talk to, these folks weren't getting therapy. They weren't going to get help because of all those reasons we talked about earlier. Think about the ability curve around getting therapy. It's expensive. It's time consuming. There's social stigma. All of these things prevent people from getting the therapy that they need. So Glenn tells me about his hook. He read my book and he did the exercises and he said, here's my hook. The internal trigger is loneliness, seeking connection. It's when someone needs to talk to another person. You pick up your phone and the action phase is with one click, you open this app and you're connected to another person. Which leads you to the third step, the variable rewards, rewards of the tribe. There's another person there ready to listen. And the investment phase, and here's where it gets really interesting, the investment phase, the more we use a product like Seven Cups, the more we begin to be transferred from someone who came looking for help to someone who's trained on how to help others. And it turns out that people who use this app get better. In fact, they get significantly better. This app has been verified by third-party studies in peer-reviewed journals as being as effective as traditional expensive psychotherapy. Glenn's app services over 800,000 sessions a week in 130 languages. Talk about the amazing power of using habits for good. 
And with that, allow me to take liberties with the words of Gandhi and ask you to build the change that you wish to see in the world. Thank you very much. And with that, I think we have, we have plenty of time for questions, right? So I have a quick favor before we take questions. Can everybody hold up their phone for me? Hold your phone up high in the air. I'll tell you why in just a second. Hold your phone high. One is for my own Instagram account, if you don't mind. Such a beautiful crowd. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, the second reason I want you to hold your phone is because I want you to go to this URL. I made the action easier for the intended behavior. See, I use my own material here. Uh, if you have an iPhone, you can just take out your camera, point it to that QR code, and you'll be taken to the website. If you don't have an iPhone, then you can go to opinion2.us. Notice it's not .com, it's opinion2.us. Uh, if you hold your phone horizontally, not vertically, it just takes you to a Google form. I would love to know what you thought of this presentation. I'm constantly tweaking it based on your feedback. Would love to know what you thought. It'd take you 30 seconds. There's only five questions. Uh, at the end of that survey, if you click Submit, you'll be given a link to my SlideShare page where you can have all the slides you just saw. If you want to keep them, share them with your colleagues and friends, please do. Uh, it, the presentation you just saw is called Hooked Model. Hooked Model is the presentation you just saw. Uh, if you, a special note, if you work in enterprise, I know many of you don't, I, you saw Consumer Web, uh, we talked a lot about Consumer Web, but if you work in enterprise products, there's a presentation on my SlideShare page that's called Hooked in the Enterprise. It shows you case studies, examples of companies that use elements of the Hook model, but only enterprise examples, if that's helpful. And with that, I would love to take some questions, please. So you talked about enough frequency. Yeah. And so what, what can that be? I mean, can it be is, you know, once a week enough? Or? Yeah, great question. So this is the number one reason why I ding a product as not potentially habit forming. A product has to be used with sufficient frequency to ever build a habit. And the cutoff point is a week's time or less. The chance of creating a habit, it's not impossible, but the chance of creating a habit if the key behavior does not occur within a week's time or less is almost zero. The key behavior has to occur with, within a week's time or less. If you think about some of the examples we talked about, Facebook, Instagram, Slack, uh, Snapchat, how often are these products used? These are intra-daily habits, right? The more frequently a product is used, the higher its habit-forming potential. So the question is always, well, my product is just not used frequently enough. What do I do? Uh, I, was in a, I was at a conference uh, speaking in front of 700 real estate agents recently. And the lady who hired me to do this talk, she, she came on stage and she said, now we're going to hear from Nir Eyal. He's an expert on habit formation. And Nir is going to teach us how to make home buying and selling into a habit. <laughs> I about lost my lunch, but I came up to the podium and I said, let me be very clear. Uh, you are never going to make home buying and selling into a habit because the definition of a habit is, a, is an impulse to do behavior with little or no conscious thought. Home buying is the opposite of that, right? We overthink a home purchase, and it doesn't occur with sufficient frequency. Buying a home is something people do every five, 10 years, if ever. So it's never gonna become a habit. But I only had one presentation, <laughs> right? I couldn't change it on the fly. Um, so I said, okay, let's give this a go, and I'll tell you how to build habit-forming products. And it was amazing because people came up to me afterwards, and they figured out ways to make tangential services habit-forming that they could then bolt on to a non-habit-forming experience. And this is done in two ways, content and community. 
Content and community. So if, you're, if the key behavior you're trying to uh, monetize, let's say, doesn't occur with sufficient frequency, what you can do is bolt on either content or community. So content, a content habit, a good example is a company, uh, Williams-Sonoma. Does everybody know Williams-Sonoma? They sell cookware. Cookware, buying cookware is not a habit. It is not something that occurs uh, within a week's time or less, right? But unlike most e-commerce companies, that are so focused on figuring out how to make people check out, William Sonoma tried to figure out how to get people to check in. And the way they did this was they created a content site called Taste. Does anybody use Taste? Anybody watch the site? It's an amazing site. It's for cooking enthusiasts. It's for the kind of person who eventually will buy William Sonoma cookware. And they're publishing content all the time. Twice a day, they're publishing interesting content. And so they're making a habit out of consuming that content so that the result of consuming that content, of all that engagement, will eventually be monetization. So the result of engagement is monetization, not the other way around. Again, we so focus on getting people to check out when we need to be thinking about ways to get them to check in. The second way is through community. If you can build some kind of habitual community around your product, again, the result of all that engagement will eventually be monetization. And the case study I like to point to here is the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club. Is anybody by chance a member of the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club? Nobody. Okay, I didn't expect. This is the, kind of the wrong demographic. Maybe your, your grandmothers and grandfathers might be, maybe. But believe it or not, 300,000 Americans are members of the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club. Talk about a product that is not used with sufficient frequency. We're talking about Christmas ornaments here, okay? Christmas ornaments. This is not a high-frequency product. And yet, you can go to Hallmark stores across the country in the middle of July, and you will see a line out the door. What's going on? The Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club has built a community around the product. Why? Because when you, this is, this is very special. I know many of you are going to run out and buy your membership right away. One of, <laughs> one of the benefits of being a member of the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club is if you're a member and the store receives a shipment of new Christmas ornaments, you are invited to help unpack them. <laughs> I know, right? Everybody's on their phones getting membership. Now, that might look like slave labor to some of you. But to people who are members of the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club, this is a big deal. Well, why is it a big deal? Because Janice is going to be there, and Fred's going to be there, my friends are going to be there. They built this community around the product. And what they're really selling is human connection, this need that we all have to understand others and to be understood ourselves. That's what forms a community habit. And of course, the result of all that engagement is eventual monetization. So those are two ways that you can take a product that is not a frequently used product and bolt on an experience that is habit-forming content or community. Please. How long does it usually take for people to build habits, and how do you measure whether or not they actually have a habit formed? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of misinformation around uh, how long it takes to build a habit. Uh, there is no single number. Some people think it's 45 days. There's, on the internet, people think it's 60 days. It's kind of been all over the place. There is no concrete number. The only things we know that studies have, have found is uh, two things. One, the more frequency, the m greater likelihood that the habit will form. That's the first thing. And that it's, it has to be within a week's time or less. 
That was about the only two things we know about, about frequency. It, we don't know that there's a magic number. It has to do with uh, salience. It has to do with how emotionally resonant that experience is. If it's a very high emotional experience, the habit forms sooner. But there's no magic number. It really depends on the experience itself. In terms of how you measure it, when it comes to product design, the state of the art is what we call cohort analysis. How many of you use cohort analysis at your companies? Okay. I predict that in a couple years, all of, those hand, all of your hands will go up. Basically, what we're doing through cohort analysis is we're changing features of the product, and then we're seeing, based on people who now use the product, what does their retention rate look like? What percentage of those customers are still using the product you know, after day 30, day 60, day 90, after we've made some kind of tweak? Now, the reason I wrote Hooked is because the question that always comes up is this question of what do we build? How do we improve our product? Right? We know what we want to do. We know what our customers want our product to do. But what do we do first? What feature do we change? And so instead of just listening to you know, what the boss says we should build, or what the investors say we should build, or even what the loudest customer says we should build, what we should do instead is to look to where our product is deficient to see which of these four steps is missing in our product design and fix those aspects first. And then we still have to do build, measure, learn. Right? This model doesn't, doesn't save you from having to do lean startup methodologies. You still have to do build, measure, learn. But at least in this way, your building is informed not by, I don't know, what, what do we do? Let's take a, a poll. Instead, it's informed through some very old, very rigorously tested consumer psychology research so that we know, hey, this is the kind of stuff we need to work on first if this is what we're working on, if we're working on increasing the engagement and retention of our product. Cool. Please. So how do you validate whatever that internal trigger is? Because you might think it's one thing, you're building it for one thing, and that might not be it. Yeah. Uh, that's, that is the most important question that you could possibly tackle when it comes to building a habit-forming product is do we understand the internal trigger? That's the first thing you want to validate. So there's a few different uh, methodologies for this. The, one of the best uh, is to look at what the user is currently doing. Right? Uh, a lot of times uh, I moved from Silicon Valley to New York City about a year and a half ago. And when I lived in Silicon Valley, I would constantly see these startups uh, who would tell me when I asked them, you know, what is the customer currently doing to fix this problem that you think they have? And the answer typically from these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed entrepreneurs was, oh, no, no, Nir, you don't understand. There is no solution in the market for this problem. Right? Nobody's tackling this problem. And they think that's a good thing. And I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> Why is it a bad thing? If you cannot find an existing solution to this problem, what does that probably mean? It's not a problem. <laughs> I don't care if the solution is scotch tape and bubble gum. I don't care if the solution is stitching together a bunch of Google Docs and an API. That's great. I want to find the kind of products and services that people are stitching together for themselves, uh, but that don't work well. So that's a great example, right? Looking for those offline solutions, looking for the, uh, those, those behaviors that the customers have has hacked together that are unnecessarily difficult for them to use. Another thing we can do is look for nascent behaviors, right? Fringe behaviors, weird behaviors that, that customers are doing. Uh, another technique is using the five whys technique, which has been around for, since the Toyota production system, which is where we, we dig deeper. So we might start very high level with, uh, our customer wants to have a dashboard that tells them about their marketing spend daily. Why? Because blah, 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 blah. Why? 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 And if you ask enough whys, you eventually will get to an internal trigger. And the reason we want to get to that internal trigger is because it takes us out of solution land. Many times we designers, we live in solution land, but we can do this and we can use this interface and I saw this somewhere else that we could totally use. 
But those are just solutions. Without understanding the problem, that's the place where we can have the most breath to figure out what the potential solution might be. And what oftentimes occurs, when we figure out the emotional problem we're trying to solve, the solution can be vastly different from anything we originally expected. And so that's why we always want to start with those internal triggers. Yes, way in the back. Okay, so what if somebody, what if a competition, what if the competition has your habit already? How do you break that habit? Uh, both external and internal, like on the front page of New York Times, they're talking about Mark Zuckerberg trying to transition their users from like public sharing to more private sharing. Yeah. So I think it's like really relevant, like an internal space, but also external, right? Yeah. Do you think you need a couple more? Platform and reputation is really hard given that they use your product. So how do you break that habit? Right. Yeah, so. It ain't easy. <laughs> and this is the competitive advantage of having a habit. If you're lucky enough to be the kind of company that, oh, thank you, that has an existing habit. Sorry, one second. Ah, that's good. Thank you. Um, if you're the, the company that owns the habit, that's a terrific place to be. That's a real competitive advantage because it's very hard for, for the competition to come in and, and swoop your customer away. The problem is, what if you have, what if you are the, the incumbent that's trying to take on the competition's existing habit? That's a big, big problem. So there are four ways to capture the competition's customer habit. Here are the four ways. The first way is if you can increase velocity through the hook. So if you can take your customer through the hook faster than your competition, trigger action reward investment faster than the competition, that's one way to do it. Uh, this typically happens with an innovation in the action phase of the hook. Right? If you can shorten the distance between the recognition of the need and the satisfaction of the need, that's where you win. So let me give you a case study here. Um, at one point, Blockbuster, Blockbuster Video had the opportunity to buy Netflix for $13 million, and they passed. They passed, and it was the biggest mistake they ever made because Blockbuster went out of business because of Netflix, almost single-handedly. Thanks. Well, why, why did Netflix beat the crap out of Blockbuster? What happened? How do they change consumer habits? Well, go back with me in time. Back when, remember when Netflix, not like it is today where it's so easy to just stream straight from your television, but remember when Netflix used to deliver those red envelopes in the mail? Imagine your experience. You come home from work. The internal trigger is workday fatigue, right? I'm tired. I just want to watch something after a long day of work. I just want to put in a movie and, and chill out, right? Well, the old way was now I got to get my car, go to the Blockbuster, see what movies are available, be disappointed the movie I wanted isn't available, find a secondary movie, take it to the counter, take out my Blockbuster card, which I forgot, make them look it up on the computer, pay for it, come home, and then finally watch the movie. As opposed to I come home from work, and here's the video waiting for me. How much easier is that to get relief from my discomfort? How quickly did the user pass through the hook in the Netflix experience versus the Blockbuster experience? Right? So that's the first way, greater velocity through the hook. The second way is greater frequency of passing through the hook. So velocity is how quickly you can go through the four steps. Frequency is how often you go through the hook at all. And this happens when there's typically some kind of interface change that follows us around, right? Technology has become more and more ubiquitous. It's with us at all times. When you think about the desktop interface was only at work or at home, and then we got mobile devices, and now we got wearable devices, and now we got Amazon Alexa and Cortana. We can talk to these devices. They're all around us. So the more frequently 
we can use these products in our day. If you can be the kind of company that, uh, that is used more often than, than the incumbent, that's your opportunity. So part of the reason that Facebook had to buy Instagram was that Facebook was a desktop first product. Right? Facebook was started before the mobile revolution. Instagram was built from the ground up for the mobile device. And what Zuckerberg figured out very quickly before anyone else uh, was that people could use the key function of, of Facebook and Instagram, which is to browse photos, much more frequently on their mobile device. And Instagram nailed that user experience very quickly. I remember when I lived in Silicon Valley, I remember the day that Instagram, that Instagram deal was announced and it was bought for a billion dollars. Everybody in Silicon Valley thought that Facebook overpaid, that Zuckerberg got ripped off for this stupid photo sharing app. Anybody want to take a guess at how much Instagram would be worth today if it was a separate company? It wouldn't be worth a billion dollars. A Wall Street bank just estimated that Instagram would be worth a hundred billion dollars. Right? Zuckerberg understands habits better than anybody. Uh, and so, so that's, that's the second way to change a consumer customer habit is frequency through the hook. The third way is to make the reward more rewarding. Now this doesn't happen often, but once in a while you will find a product that is just way better at scratching the user's itch. Right? Now the Harvard Business Review says that the product can't just be a little bit better, that it has to be nine times better to change the inertia of a habit. But once in a while, you will see a product that just blows everything else out of the water and is better at scratching the user's itch. It makes the reward more rewarding. And then the final, the fourth way of uh, capturing your competition's customer habit is by making it easier to get into the hook in the first place. Uh, so if you think about a few years ago, Microsoft Office used to be the most widely used enterprise software in the world. Today it isn't. Today the most widely used enterprise software is Google Docs. Google Docs is the most widely used enterprise software. How did that happen? Well, when Google Docs first came out, it couldn't do even a fraction of what Microsoft Office could do, but it had some really interesting key advantages. Number one, it was free. And number two, it was all hosted in the cloud. So if you're a college student who just wants to write a term paper, or uh, you're a startup and you just need a quick spreadsheet to run some numbers, how difficult was it to go get software in a box from Microsoft and pay for it versus just using Google Docs for free in the cloud? So Google Docs won initially by making it easier for people to get into the hook in the first place. Okay? So the four ways to capture the, customers, uh, the competition's customer habit, greater velocity, greater frequency, make the reward more rewarding, and easier entry into the hook. Cool. Please. Yeah, what advice do you have for helping people form habits that are themselves uncomfortable. So I work in online education, and a lot of the habits I would love for our learners to form are, require a lot of effort on their part. Right. Yeah. So education is a toughie, and it's a tricky one um, because of a few reasons. So number one, the, the, the number one problem I think with online education is that the alternatives are so easy. When you think about the ability curve, you also need to think about the ability to do other things. So when you're all sitting in this, in this real life classroom, and I'm teaching you right now, uh, it's, it's, there's, there's pressures that make it difficult to leave. Right? You don't want to be that one person in the middle who says, OK, I'm going to go now because you're boring. Right? I see you. <laughs> so that would be difficult to do. Now, if you're watching me online and I'm boring, you just click over to YouTube and do something else. So you also have to cons consider what's going on outside the context of just the use of your product. That's a big problem for online education. Uh, another big problem with online education is that it's really freaking boring. 
right? Most online education is a sage on a stage, blah, blah, blahing, and it's not interactive at all. When you compare it to, uh, to, to people who do it right, uh, so my daughter uh, is homeschooled. And she uses, uh, uh, she uses an online education system where all of the homework, they flip the model, where all of the homework, so to speak, watching videos, reading content online, you do before class. So that when you get into class, it's this quiz show. And the teacher has an assistant who's constantly picking kids to answer questions. So she says, okay, you know, Becky, what's the answer? And uh, Jim, what's the answer? She's constantly like picking kids to interact. So it's like, almost like a game show. That's a good use of online education, right? Where it becomes this, where it's nothing new. This is the Socratic method. This is 2,500 years old, right? Where you're engaging discussion and that fact, that element of surprise of, okay, might the teacher call on me? Is, you know, how do I participate? Am I going to know the answer? That encourages this engagement uh, and, and variable reward as opposed to blah, 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 blahing uh, with an online video. So is that, is that helpful at all? Yeah, that's good. Okay, great. Please. So I, th I think for, um, for Yelp in particular, I think that there is, it's not a general use habit. Yelp wanted to go after gaining a habit with one specific customer segment. Waze did something very similar uh, when they first started out. Yelp doesn't need everybody to be in the habit of using Yelp. Yelp wants the kind of people who love to keep notes on restaurants. These people do exist. There's probably some in the room. Who it pains them to not take a note about a restaurant. These are the kind of people who were doing this on pen and paper before Yelp even existed. And, the, and, they, and, and Yelp did an amazing job of, of, of coddling this community, of really embracing this community of people. They had parties for them. They recognized them. They really welcomed them in because they knew if they could develop uh, a habit with those folks, the kind of people who always left a review somewhere about a restaurant, even if it was to themselves, then that would create the user-generated content to support the platform. But for the rest of us who say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a nice, you know, a good Thai place in my neighborhood, that's actually not, the habit isn't Yelp. I would argue the habit is still Google. If you, t what most people do, uh, the person who owns the habit is still Google. They type in, you know, Thai restaurants in my neighborhood. Yelp is struggling to be one of those search results. Uh, and, and they haven't been able to get into that habit. Uh, what they do have the habit of is people who leave constant reviews. So that's really about customer segmentation. Waze did something very similar. When you know Waze's big advantage is that they they had uh, you know they had the best data set around roads, uh, starting in Israel where the company started, and then throughout the world. And they did something very similar. They wanted the kind of people who got into the habit th that they wanted to play this game of mapping all the roads in in their city. Uh, and so that's what they really embraced first. And then that populated the data so that everyone else who uses it less frequently could have that data set. So the, the lesson here is to really go after the right set of users. Airbnb has a similar example. Airbnb does not have a consumer habit. It has a renter habit. It, the owner of the property is in the habit. Right? My brother has a, a property that he's on Airbnb. He's on Airbnb every single day, replying to people, uh, improving his property, figuring out what he can do. That's a habit for him. It's not a habit for the renter. It's a, it's a habit you know, that the renter is still typing in Hawaii vacation, and hopefully Airbnb will be one of those top few results for the company. Yeah. Let's do two more questions. Sure. So it's been a few years since you have come out, so is there anything new or anything particular you would emphasize now that 
feedback, any things you've learned? Yeah, so uh, the question was around uh, what's changed with, with Hooked. You know, not a lot has changed with the, with the basic model. The same four parts are still, still work. I think what's, um, the question that's really been on my mind, and I think what's different, when I started writing Hooked, um, the problem, the discussion when it came to habits and consumer behavior was all about how do we get people to use our technology? And today the, the discussion has kind of shifted into uh, how do we make sure we use this technology responsibly and that we don't overuse technology. And that's actually the subject of my next book, Indistractable, uh, which will be out in September. I've been working on it for five years since Hooked was published. Um, because I, I wrote, even with Hooked, I wrote Hooked for two reasons. Number one, I wrote it because I wanted a guidebook for the rest of us, right? If you're not Facebook, if you're not Google, how can you use a psychology to help people form healthy habits? But the second reason was that I wanted to show that once you understand these techniques, you can do something about it. And in, in a way, it was a Trojan horse in that, you know, I, wanted, I think you can't read Hooked and not think to yourself, ooh, wow, like, this is being done to me, right? And, and, but I, I wanted to make it more explicit with this next book around, you know, how do the rest of us uh, put technology in its place? And I think that's a new conversation. Now, I will say that I think uh, it's going a little bit overboard. <laughs> I think we have shifted into skepticism, which is, I think, a wonderful value, to now we're in this realm of cynicism, where now it's, it's uh, tech can do nothing right. And I think that's unfortunate, because I, I think if there's one thing that human history has proven is that the way we improve the human condition is through technological innovation. This is a consistent theme in human history. Uh, and so that it would be a shame if people uh, stopped being a part of the innovation economy because they thought, well, you know, all these companies are doing unethical things. They are certainly doing a lot of things wrong. Right? Let's just say that. I'm not a tech apologist. Uh, and I don't get paid from these companies that I show you here. I just admire the, their techniques and think that everybody else should, should use similar techniques. But when it comes to this question of tech overuse, um, I think that's a really interesting question. I think a lot of us struggle with tech overuse. I know I did. Uh, the book starts with this anecdote of, of when I realized that I had a problem. I was sitting with my daughter. Uh, we had some time together, and we were, look, we were reading this, this uh, book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And uh, you know, one of them was like make a paper airplane, another one was uh, uh, you know, like this little card game, and one of the activities was to ask each other this question of if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I don't know what she said in that moment because I was distracted with my device, and I didn't hear what she said. And she left the room, and it took me a few minutes to even figure out what had gone on, and I realized she wasn't there, and I'd blown it, right? Like I'd totally blown this perfect daughter-daddy moment because I was distracted with my device. And if I know how this stuff is done, uh, and, and I had lost control, then I knew other people had similar struggles. And so that's why I went on this five-year journey to figure out what's the right way to deal with this stuff. Because um, like I'm, I'm very long on human ingenuity. I know we will get through this. I know we will adapt to these technologies. But we don't really have the, the norms, the manners, the, 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 the mores of how do we deal with so much good stuff, right? Like all this stuff that we have on our phones, come on, admit it. Like this was science fiction when I was a kid that we could do all this stuff. But we haven't figured out how to adapt to it in such a way 
that we make sure we put it in its place. So that's really, I think, what's changed since I wrote Hooked. There's a lot more awareness that, one, this psychology even exists. Like, I had to convince people that this psychology was even at work when I first started out writing Hooked. Uh, and then, two, that there's more recognition and uh, an appetite for, OK, how do we make sure that we can use this technology in a way that we get the best from the technology without it getting the best of us? And I'm happy to talk about those techniques, too, if anybody's interested. Yes. <laughs> Ask away. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, if I were to write a book like this, I'd worry every day, you know, how many people have used it for good and how many people have used it for essentially evil, right? <coughs> like, uh, do you get the sense that there's enough problems out there that we should be inducing habits around that, like, you're doing more good than harm in terms of trying to get people to build habits for the technologies? Yeah, so a few things. Um, one, I think by far, the problem is that people don't use these techniques enough. The problem is not that a few companies, we're talking a handful of companies, have figured out how to suck us in, right? The Facebooks and Googles, you know, they figured out how to suck us in, as we've seen. That's not the problem. And I'll tell you why in a minute. The real problem is that the thousands of companies out there that have products that can really benefit users' lives are not designed with these techniques, and we blow it. Think about, you know, local businesses government services, enterprise software. These products don't suck us in, they just suck, <laughs> right? That's the real problem. Like may, I, every single one of you in this room, you're not struggling with addicting anybody, you're struggling with the fact that nobody gives a shit about your product. <laughs> that's the real problem, right? Admit it, <laughs> that's the problem. And that's who Hooked is for. Hooked is not for the big guys, they don't need it. That, that's where I learned these techniques. Uh, so I don't worry ever about someone using these tactics uh, for ill. And the fact is, I put in the book, there's a section in the book called The Morality of Manipulation, where I give people this two-part test, that you have to ask yourself two questions around applying any behavioral design techniques. What you have, if you want to do this stuff ethically, you have to ask yourself these two questions. Number one, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? And that's a question for only, that only you can answer. This isn't a way for you to judge other people or for other people to judge you. It's for you to ask yourself, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? That's the first question. But that's not good enough. The second question is, am I the user? Why do I want you to answer this question? What's the first rule of drug dealing? Who knows the first rule of drug dealing? Never get high on your own supply. That's the first rule of drug dealing. I want you to answer in the affirmative that I am the user. Why? Because if you are the user, you're breaking the first rule of drug dealing, meaning that if there are any deleterious effects to the product, you're going to be the first to know about it. So it's only if you fall in that top right quadrant of is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives and am I the user, then you are what I call a facilitator. And I say, go for it. That doesn't mean that there won't be unintended consequences. right? Paul Virillos, the philosopher, said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. It's inevitable that any product or service of this kind of scale that billions of people are using is going to have unintended consequences. Every technological revolution does, right? It's inevitable. Um, so so that's, that, that is absolutely going to happen. Now, around this question of addiction, a lot of times there's this uh, confusion between addiction and habits. And there's a very specific reason why I did not call my book How to Build Addictive Products. It's called How to Build Habit-Forming Products for a reason. An addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So you would never want to build an addiction for a user. 
right? You would never want to do that intentionally because addiction always involves harm. A habit is just to do an impulse with little or no conscious thought, right? These are not necessarily connected, okay? So the rule is, unfortunately, that if you build any product that is used by a sufficiently large number of people and is good at solving their problems, somebody is going to get addicted to it. Two years ago, I wrote an article in the Atlantic around uh, Q-tip addiction. Q-tip addiction, this is a real thing. If you type into Google Q-tip addiction, there are people really struggling. It's not a joke, they're really struggling with Q-tip addiction. In fact, any analgesic, anything that solves pain, if it is used by a sufficiently large number of people, will be addictive to somebody. But that should never be the company's goal. That's an, that's an unfortunate byproduct. Now the good news is that these companies know who the addicts are. And so for years I've been lobbying them to do something about it, right? The alcohol manufacturers, if you make booze, you don't know who the alcoholics are. How could you know? But the gaming companies and Facebook and YouTube, they know how much you use. And so if they wanted to, I want them to create a use and abuse policy to say, look, we're going to reach out to people who use the product you know, in the top 1%, and we're going to reach out and say, hey, look, it looks like you may be using this product to an extent that you may be struggling with an addiction. Can we help? Can we help? Now, that's for the top 1% who are actually addicted. The bad news is, is that for the rest of us, nobody's going to help us. Nobody's going to help us. If you hold your breath waiting for these tech companies to make their products less engaging, <laughs> you're going to suffocate. It's never going to happen. We can regulate what Russia does on Facebook. We can regulate their monopoly status. One thing that will never be regulated away is the fact that these companies are using psychological techniques to make their products engaging. And frankly, we want them to. Do we want Netflix to make shows that suck? Of course not. We want them to make shows that are good, that we want to watch. That's not a problem. That's progress. It's up to us. Nobody's going to come save us. And the fact is, by understanding this psychology, there's so much we can do. Right? What do we do about this stuff? Well, the new model I'm working on, this indistractable model, is, is not that hard. There's three, actually, there's three easy steps and one hard step. Here are the three easy steps. The first easy step is to schedule your time. Make time for what I call traction. So the opposite of distraction is traction. Traction, distraction, right? Scheduling your day. 10% of people keep a calendar. 10% of people keep a calendar. Here's the thing. Write this down if you can. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from. So if you don't have anything on your calendar for the day, everything is a potential distraction. Your boss is a distraction. Your kids are a distraction. Of course, the news media is going to be a distraction and Facebook's going to be a distraction because you didn't plan what you wanted to do. So the reality is in this day and age, you have to plan every minute of your day, even if you plan to do nothing to meditate, to take a walk, to be bored, put it on your calendar, okay? Also plan time for all the stuff that today you think is a distraction. Make time in your day. For me, my social media time, it's on my calendar, 6.30 to 8.30, that's my social media time. It's on my calendar. I turned something that used to be a distraction into traction. It's exactly what I plan to do for that period of time. The next thing we can do is to remove the external triggers, right? In less than an hour, I can show you how to clear away all those external triggers, those pings, those dings, those rings on your phone, by simply adjusting your notification settings. Two-thirds of people with a smartphone 
two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. How can we call this stuff hijacking our brain and addictive if we haven't changed our notification settings? And guess what? There's nothing Zuckerberg can do about it to change them back. The, la this, uh, the, the, um, the next thing we can do is to make traction, I'm sorry, to make distraction less likely through pacts. So today there's an explosion of free technology that we can use to keep distraction at bay. We can, on my phone, for example, I can show you, I use a product called Forest. And Forest, every time I sit down to write, writing is really hard. I constantly want to get distracted when I'm writing. I want to go Google something or check something on YouTube. I take out the Forest app. I put in how much time I want to have focused work time for. This is a free app. As soon as I hit go, a little virtual tree is planted. Now, if I pick up my phone and do anything with it, that little virtual tree dies. <laughs> it's a stupid little virtual tree, right? It is an incredibly effective way to make a pact with yourself. It's called using a pre-commitment device. There's other things we can do, like forming a new identity. That's why I wear this shirt that, calls, that I'm identifying myself as indistractable. Right? It's part of my identity now. There's this joke, uh, I used to be a vegetarian, that's why I can make this joke, but there used to, there's this joke, how do you know someone's a vegetarian? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Right? Why is that? Why do people love telling you about why they're vegetarian? Why, why does every religion, a uh, major religion, have this element of proselytizing other people? Is it because they want to spread the religion? Kind of. But really it's about reinforcing the belief in the believer. So part of this is about saying, I'm an indistractable person to others, to making this a social norm to in the workplace, in social settings, that I am an indistractable person. Okay? Those are three easy steps. Here's the hard step. The hardest step is recognizing that distraction starts from within. This is the cold hard truth we do not like to face. Remember where I started with internal triggers? If you don't have that itch, if you don't have that desire, that looking for something, if you're not looking for escape, distraction's not a problem. The fact is, when I was with my daughter and I was distracted, it wasn't the phone's fault. It was that I didn't have a good way to cope with the discomfort of too much toddler time. Right? After two hours of toddler time, I'm sorry, as a dad, I get bored. And I should have just said, you know what, honey, daddy needs some time and excuse myself. But I didn't know how to cope with that discomfort at the time. Right? So if we're using our devices constantly to escape an unpleasant reality, we have to face the fact that it's not the device. If it's not Facebook today, it's television from yesterday, or radio, or the book even. All of these things were melting our brains because they were these distraction devices. Every generation has this tech fear. Literally, the book was going to melt our brains. People had big problems with novels when they first came out because of how distracting they were supposed to be. Because if we're looking for a distraction, we will always find it. And the fact is, in this day and age, in the moment, they're going to get you. They're going to get you. If you don't plan ahead and learn how to become indistractable, you're going to be one of these people that goes through life constantly distracted. The good news is it's not that hard. We can learn how to do this. The most important thing, and this will be the end of my rant, the most important thing is to stop thinking that we're powerless. We keep hearing tech critics talk about how it's addictive and it's hijacking your brain and it's irresistible. And that is a big load of BS. In fact, studies find the number one determinant of whether someone who is addicted to, to, to hard drugs will recover from that addiction is not their level of physical dependency. Okay, listen carefully. Not their level of physical dependency. It is their belief in their own power to do so. 
So when we call these technologies addictive and that they're hijacking our brain and that they're you know, making us do these things, we are literally giving these companies more power and more credit than they deserve. So the first step is, is understand that we are only powerless if we believe that we are. <laughs> A big thanks to Nier for presenting, and again to Bluehost for hosting this event. If you learned some things from Nier's talk, be sure to share it with your team, or share it on Twitter, and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events. Yeah.